believe that we've talked to everybody that you know everyone that we know of that could have been around or might have seen something or may have knowledge now that doesn't mean that there's somebody out there that you know we've missed but um, you know we've put a lot of work in it and I, th I think we've got everybody uh, but we're always hopeful maybe somebody like I said maybe somebody knows something and hasn't come forward from the blade this is code 18 unsolved season one episode eight somebody knows Code 18 just references the radio code that we use when we describe a dead body. Detective Bill Goodlett says police believe they've talked to everybody that could have information about Al Vendero's disappearance, but they still don't know what happened to him, where he may be, or who could have caused his death. Because remember, this is being considered a no-body homicide. On this podcast, we've heard from a lot of the same people police would have interviewed. We talked to Jeremy Darrow, Alvin's oldest son, about his last moments with his father and the weird conversations that followed with his brother, Tim Darrow. I did talk to him on the phone. Okay. Ask him where dad was and he just, you know, he gave me that crazy story about, you know, him taking off, running or, you know, on a bike. Then he was in a van. Then he got pushed in a van. Then he told me that while my dad was there arguing with these guys that owned the bike, my dad or Tim left, left my dad there. So there was a couple different stories of what happened. We heard from Tim, the last known person to see Alvin alive, about a fight he had with his father over a stolen motorcycle and the varying stories of what happened to him after. I was only home for a little bit, and... No, I mean, I seen him for a little bit. We, I mean, there was a little, you know, argument and everything, and... uh. That was it. Thomas Wiley, who owned the stolen motorcycle, and his son, Nick Wiley, walked us through the burglary that led up to Alvin taking possession of the bike. And Thomas recalled how he discovered Alvin's blood on the gas tank. The blood that you saw, would you describe that as enough to kill a person? No. No, no it would have just been like a bloody nose. Rocky Conley, Alvin's friend, described the ominous feeling that led him to call 911 with a false story on the day Alvin disappeared. I was just trying to get the cops here. So I was like, you know, there's people breaking in the house or something. I made something up to try to get some response. Peggy Descamps recounted the last time she saw Alvin, minutes before his fight with Tim. And she and neighbor Corinne Lopez shared the history behind the father and son's volatile relationship. Tim was just, if you... Hopper didn't do what he wanted. He would freak out all the time. Hit him, call him all kinds of names, break stuff. I mean, constantly. 
Anthony Tony Wheatley filled in some of the gaps about how Alvin came to have the stolen motorcycle in the first place, which seems to be at the center of his disappearance. My dude's got a motorcycle. He lived up over the top. He said, my dude's got a motorcycle for sale. And I said, oh yeah, what kind? She goes, I don't know, but it's got a supercharger on it and shit. I said, dude got title and shit? She said, no, it's stolen. You know, the first thing come out of my mouth, don't you? Don't want nothing to do with it. Alvin's sister, Cheryl Bonk, shared memories about the funny and dog-loving brother she knew, but also acknowledged his dark past. He was always in trouble. I mean, he was like, <laughs> even as a little kid, well, he would just, you know, wrestle with his brothers, which is normal. Nothing wrong with that. But <clears throat> even when he would get, I mean, in, in trouble, some kind of trouble, my dad would get him out of it. They were good at getting him out of anything he did. And Detective Goodlett has helped fill in other blanks with additional information gathered during their investigation over the years, including the story from Michael Johnson about helping Tim move something heavy to Michigan on the night Alvin disappeared. Kid said he had been uh, with Tim and they had, uh, Tim had asked him to go with him. And he did. He went with Tim in a truck, and they drove up some various roads up into Michigan uh, with a barrel in the back of a pickup truck. And uh, Tim dumped the barrel, got back in the car, and they came back to Toledo. We've attempted to verify everything we could about Alvin's life and presumed death, but holes remain. Holes through which a suspected killer continues to slip through. Remember, police opened their investigative file to us for the first time, hoping that their new level of transparency would be what finally pries loose the information they've been waiting for to find Alvin's body and arrest the person responsible for his disappearance. They're waiting on you, a listener somewhere with knowledge about the case who is willing to step forward to put this Code 18 to rest. Well, it's a, you know, it's a couple years old, and um, when this originally occurred, you know, there's always interest when, when something's fresh and new, and then it's kind of out of, out of sight, out of mind, and... You know, we would just like people to think back, uh, you know, back to July 2017 and try to recall if they, if they heard anything, no matter how minor it is, about what may have happened or if they saw something that seemed out of ordinary and they just didn't really know what to make of it at the time. Um, you know, we would encourage them to call us uh, and let us know just that one small thing that may seem insignificant to them might have, you know, a greater meaning to us. Um, you know, it's it's um, we would love to be able to find out what happened and where Alvin is, uh, and uh, you know. Somebody knows what happened to him.
We've explored multiple theories for Alvin's disappearance in this podcast, looking at people who may have had motive to hurt Alvin. The most obvious motive was the stolen motorcycle that was hidden in Tim's garage. Could the owner of the motorcycle, Thomas Wiley, have found out where it was and come to claim it back? That was one of the scenarios Tim described following his father's disappearance, that men with guns, possibly the men who owned the bike, showed up to take it back. But the accusation made Thomas Wiley laugh. Obviously, he wanted the bike back, but he said he would never need to hurt someone to get it. And if he was involved in Alvin's disappearance, he argued, why would he alert police to the blood evidence on the bike? Now, it's difficult for police to clear suspects with any certainty as long as the investigation remains open. But as much as they can, Detective Goodlett says they vetted the Wileys and found nothing suspicious to suggest they were involved. Then, there was the theory that the man who sold Alvin the bike might have come back to harm him for some reason. But again, Detective Goodlett said the man they believe is responsible for selling the bike has died. He also had no real motive to harm Alvin that the police could find. Along those same lines, police also found nothing nefarious in Alvin's past that could account for why someone would want to target him. Others seemed to have alibis. Alvin's son Jeremy was at the marina when he went missing, and Rocky was driving from work, which I assume police have cell phone tower evidence to prove. I have to assume because cell phone evidence was the one piece that Detective Goodlett declined to talk to me about. But still, there were major questions about why Rocky would call 911 with a false story about men with guns running up to a house owned by Alvin. He says the call was made out of worry, not malice. And Rocky has been a driving force behind trying to find Alvin. There also was a strange detail that came to light later about a serious fight Alvin had with his brother, Robbie Darrow, roughly three weeks before his disappearance. But police haven't found it to be more than coincidence at this time. Alvin fought a lot with his siblings, and had even been accused of threatening and physically harming his sisters, to the point where at least one of them filed a restraining order against him. In the situation with Robbie, who lived across the street from Alvin, Alvin appears to be the victim. A police report for the incident says Alvin called to report that Robbie was threatening to kill him brandishing a gun while busting out the back window of Alvin's Grand Cherokee Jeep and breaking the driver's side mirror on Alvin's truck. Alvin told police that Robbie had always been jealous of him and had repeatedly accused him of selling drugs. Police say they have no evidence that Alvin was dealing or selling drugs. As far as they could tell, he'd cleaned up his act and hadn't been in trouble with the law in five years. That leaves one more person, Tim Darrow, Alvin's youngest son. Again, police have never called Tim a suspect in his father's disappearance, but the path that their investigation has taken does seem to point toward him. His property was searched three times 
with police justifying and search warrants that they believed they'd find evidence there of what may have happened to Alvin. You've heard Detective Goodlett say that Tim was the last known person to see Alvin, as confirmed by a video recording Tim took of some of their interaction over the stolen motorcycle. There was also the strange story Michael Johnson told police of helping Tim deposit a barrel in a random field in Michigan the night Alvin disappeared. That account has never been confirmed, because such a location or barrel has not been found. But police also wondered what Mr. Johnson would have to gain by telling a lie. And finally, Detective Goodlett notes that Tim's version of events leading up to his father's disappearance has changed several times, making it harder for them to trace leads. Tim's brother Jeremy shared that frustration. You know, there were 15 different police officers asking, you know, my brother different questions about where my dad was. Simple, where was he? Where is he? You know, that story changed 10 times. There's only one story. You know, how many times does one story have to change before you start to think, you know, maybe something else happened? Tim has defended his innocence citing medical reasons behind his varying accounts and arguing that despite his complicated relationship with Alvin, he loved his father. And admittedly, police don't have evidence to suggest otherwise, because Tim remains a witness, not a suspect. No one has been charged in Alvin's presumed death. But recent events, particularly this podcast, has called Tim into question again based on yet another version of events he told me in our interview from episode 5. Tim had never admitted to punching his dad before, nor seeing him bleed. Before I interviewed Tim, here's what Detective Goodlett could tell me about Tim's fight with Alvin. So it's my understanding, though, that at some point in these interviews that Tim did with police, he admits to having some kind of physical confrontation with his father over this motorcycle. Yeah, he does make statements that they argued about it. Um, and uh, like I said, some some of the statements are a little inconsistent when we talk to him about what exactly that means arguing, are you arguing, are you fighting, are you hands-on, or what, what are we talking about here? So it, it changes a little bit, uh, so but he does make statements that there, there's, a, there's, an issue, there's a problem with this motorcycle being there between him and his dad. He never says, I punched him, I pushed him. Um, really don't want to get into exactly what he's saying at this point. But he does admit that there's some type of a, a problem between him and his dad with his motorcycle. But that problem, as Detective Goodlett put it, doesn't explain how Alvin's blood came to be on the motorcycle. Does Tim ever say in his conversations with the detective that his father, he saw his father bleeding on the day of his disappearance? No. But when I interviewed Tim, all of that changed. No one had asked him about the fight since police questioned him in 2017. More than two years later, when I asked him to recall that day, he remembered more. 
You say that you fought with your dad over this bike. What does that mean? Well, I was pulling it out of the garage, pushing it out, and he tried to push me back into the garage with the bike. The bike fell over, and we started wrestling and arguing. So that's uh, that's how it ended. Did either, like, did it get physical? Were you guys punching each other? Uh, yeah, I, I punched him, he punched the bike. Yeah, we kind of, yeah, we got into it. I was bleeding, he was, I think we were both bleeding. When I shared this information with Detective Goodlett, he was surprised. You know, he mentions arguing with his dad. Um, there's no punches, he's not talking about any punches being thrown. Uh, he does mention at one point that he punches the motorcycle. Uh, but some of that's the first I've heard of, of him punching his dad and his dad bleeding and him bleeding. That's, I haven't heard that. What does this new information mean? We still don't know. been a long, winding road getting here, with seemingly more questions than answers. But one thing we do know for certain? This case is active again. Police started re-interviewing witnesses in December. Jeremy, Peggy, and Rocky all say they were questioned again, this time by Detective Goodlett, who took over the case from retired detective Deborah Hahn. Here's how Rocky describes his interview. Uh, and then they just pretty much questioned me about everything, like, I need, do I have any new thoughts? Do I have, um, you know, any more suspicions? And my suspicions have never changed from day one. Everyone involved has their suspicions about what happened to Alvin, and almost all of them seem to overlap with a single suspect. But suspicion is not evidence. And until there is evidence, no one wants to voice their fears on the record. Jeremy, least of all. When I asked him directly what he thought happened to his father, he declined to answer. But he said this about his father's disappearance. My dad was, the last place he was was in my brother's backyard. He never left my brother's yard. So... (laughs) So this situation is is very difficult for you, and there's a lot that you aren't able to talk about. Yep. Um, But you seem pretty set in a version of events that you know what happened to your dad. You believe that he is dead, um, possibly even believe you know how and why, but there's still an element of closure that you don't have? A lot. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. You know, I've dealt with... You know, him being gone, so, you know, I, I've done that. <clears throat> but when you don't get the closure, you know, I want to know where he's at. I want to know where he's at, you know, that I want to bury him. You know, you can't say goodbye. And especially not when, you know, it's it's still considered a missing person. He's not a missing person. I also asked Jeremy about his relationship with his brother, Tim. And he told me that... The day he lost his father, he effectively lost his brother, too. 
They've spoken only rarely since. What's your relationship like with Tim now? We don't have one. And this changed? After all the different stories on that day. So when your father went missing, it changed? Absolutely. Understandably, Jeremy is frustrated with the lack of answers in his father's case in the last three years. He says if the tables were turned and it was he or Tim that went missing, or anyone in their family really, Alvin would not rest until he found them or found out what happened to them. If this was one of us, the police would have arrested my dad for harassment by now. It wouldn't have happened like it did, or nothing being done. If this was me or my brother, or any of my aunts, Rocky, my dad would have been arrested for harassment because he would have been at the police station every day. Jeremy wants to show his father the same respect, and three of Alvin's four siblings seem just as determined. Cheryl Bonk, Sue Omler, and Alvin's oldest brother, Ron Darrow, have offered a $5,000 reward for information about Alvin's case that leads to his body and an arrest. Toledo Crime Stoppers also offers additional rewards of $100 to $2,000 based on how valuable the tip is in making an arrest. In 2018, for example, the department paid out $30,000 in reward money to various tipsters. Police always encourage tipsters to speak directly to a detective. But the Crime Stoppers line does allow for people to remain anonymous if they wish. No phone numbers are visible, and no other information is recorded that could be traced back to the source. You can leave a tip online through ToledoPolice.com, or you can call it in using the number we provide at the end of every episode. Alvin's family is desperate for answers. Despite any of Alvin's flaws, they say he was a good man who deserved better than becoming another statistic, another unsolved homicide tormenting the families who are left behind to always wonder what happened. Alvin's oldest sister, Cheryl Bonk, says they're prepared to follow the truth wherever it leads. Even if it turns out to be someone that you know and love responsible for Hopper's death, you want answers and you want that brought to light. I do. I so do because it's only right. I mean, Hopper was a good man. He had a he had a big heart for his kids and his grandkids he loved dearly and it just you know it's not right that he died the way he did. If you could get a message to the person responsible, what would you want them to hear? I would want them to hear just how heartbreaking we are, heartbroken that our brother who we definitely loved a lot had this kind of thing happen to him at the end of his life. And all we want is, you know, to be able to know why this happened. And we we would love to just, you know, 
have a ceremony and put this all at rest. Not that I ever want him to go to prison for the rest of his life, but I think he should pay whoever did it some time behind bars because they may do it again and think they just got away with it. That's that's what hurts a lot, that they have they think they have gotten away with this. So I just hope that someone, you know, finds it in their heart to give us a little bit of peace so that we know what happened to him and you know, just hopefully he's at peace. Do you think that you could forgive his killer? Yes. Yes, I could. This has been Season 1 of Code 18 Unsolved. Alvin Darrow is Missing. If you've enjoyed the podcast, we invite you to subscribe to get alerts anytime there are developments in Alvin's case, as well as to listen to future cases. You can also find the episodes and additional case information, including photos and videos, at ToledoBlade.com slash Code18. As with all of our cases, this remains an open investigation. If you have any information about this case or any other unsolved homicides, call Toledo Crime Stoppers at 419-255-1111. Help put this Code 18 to rest. And help spread the word about the podcast by giving us a five-star review and recommending us to your friends. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. You can also find the episodes and additional case information, including photos and videos, at ToledoBlade.com slash Code18. Code18 is reported and written by me, your host, Caitlin Durbin, for The Blade. Phil Kaplan is our producer, with original art and theme music by Danielle Gamble. Additional original music provided by Joel Roberts. Editing assistance comes from Blade editors Michael Walton, Michael Bryce, and Kim Bates. Hi everyone, this is Caitlin Durbin. I'm a Blade reporter and host of this podcast. If you're enjoying it, I invite you to subscribe to The Blade and support my colleagues and the reliable journalism that makes this work possible. The Blade has been reporting on Toledo's history since before the city itself was established. We are the newspaper of record. Go to ToledoBlade.com and click subscribe.